Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, how your car's dashboard became the screen every tech company seems to want to be on. Later on, I'll chat with Viba Walker, who spent the last three plus years driving an electric car from the Netherlands to Australia, which, in case you didn't know, are very far apart, relying on the kindness and electricity of strangers along the way to get him there. But first, this week, scientists revealed the first ever image of a black hole. It's located at the center of a gigantic galaxy 55 million light years away. It's 6.5 billion times the mass of the sun, and apparently the picture we got is actually what the black hole looked like 55 million years ago. So in case you're wondering, all of that is bonkers. Here to talk about all of it, assuming they also haven't been sucked into a black hole, Christopher Mims and Joanna Stern, and joining us in New York is the Journal's digital science editor, Daniela Hernandez. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hi. Hello. So this is, is everyone like fully just jazzed up about space and science? I feel like... It was a very exciting day on the internet. So black holes have just captured the imagination of people for so long. They're part of popular culture. They've been in in movies. Um, there's countless memes about them. You know, for the longest time, they've sort of had this, like the ultimate invisibility cloak around them. And scientists have been trying to ascertain like where they are, what they look like. And this is the first time they've actually seen one. Uh, one of the scientists that uh, I talked to said that all our images of black holes up until yesterday had come from um, movies or TVs or artists' impressions of what they might look like. And now for the first time, we're able to see what they actually look like. So it's seeing this thing itself. And when you actually see something, you can really begin to understand it better. So maybe, you know, in the next couple of years, they'll be they'll become a little less less mysterious. And I think that that's why people were so, so jazzed about it. There's um, people often say in science that, you know, you can you can only study the things you measure. And so we've been able to indirectly measure black holes before. But this is the first First time we are actually seeing one in the flesh, so to speak. So, and why? I feel like I, I sort of understand from like the science fiction perspective why a black hole is cool because it, it you know sucks everything in and it's it's a neat sort of supervillain in any space movie. But why? <laughs> Why to normal scientists here on Earth are black holes so interesting? Like, why is that something we've been thinking about and talking about for so long? Well, there's there's this there's this kind of love affair romance with Einstein and his theories of relativity. Right? He himself is 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 a meme and a pop culture icon to some extent. Yeah. He predicted the existence of black holes, you know, more than a hundred years ago, and he had sort of a, a love hate relationship with them. He didn't really like the idea of them. But as more evidence mounted, it became clear to scientists that they were, in fact, a, a reality. Um, and I think that the there's always this thing like when you when you when you when you have a theory, you really want to know whether that's true or not. And these black holes sort of encapsulate all of that. We had, as I said, indirect evidence of their existence, but never really like tangible data. And I think also it speaks to our human love of 
exploration. Like there's there's something in us that drives us to want to be first and see something first. That's what drove people to explore the Arctic and the Antarctic, and this is sort of the ultimate expression of that. But I'm so I what I think I'm not a space nerd, and I probably haven't even seen any of the movies where black holes suck people up or whatever the the joke is about Interstellar them. They're all fantastic. The latest, I think. Yeah, it's not it's not my thing. What I found so amazing about this story, which is all the technology that they used at, to make this happen. Like to me, yes. that is so inspiring. I think, like especially at this time right now, where we talk every week about what technology, what, like what's doing good here. We're complaining all the time about all the issues of the big tech companies, and then you see this scientist and a team of like four teams. I mean, your piece, I mean, maybe you can just even t- give our readers who haven't read, our listeners who haven't read your piece about the technology that was at play. But I think that that to me is is fascinating. Yeah, so the, the four teams you're referring to are on the are on the software side, but this collaboration really spanned many countries and many teams and many years of collaboration. And I think that the the scientists at the press conference where when this was announced were really driving home the point that science, especially big science like this, really can't fall on the shoulders of any one person or any one country. It really is is a collaboration. And I I think that that's also why this was so great. We live in an era where there's just so much division and politics, and we feel like we can't even trust the person next to us. But this really was a collaboration among the, like, the entire world. I think any scientist will tell you that the ultimate invisible thing was the black hole and just really cool to see. So I keep hearing the phrase Earth-sized telescope. Okay. Uh, and I feel like that can't be possible or I would be able to see it. Tell me about the gear that they use to actually take this photo. Yeah. So they they had a network um, spread around the globe of uh, different radio telescopes. So they had one in Antarctica, I think another set in South America. Uh, there were eight of these uh, different radio telescopes. And they were able to stitch them together uh, with a technology known as interferometry um, that basically... I've been trying to pronounce that word for like yeah, a day and a half. Yeah, yeah. It's, well it's a hard word to pronounce. I, I didn't really do it very well either. <laughs> uh, it basically stitches these different antennas together to create a massive one. And the more um, radio telescopes that they add to the network, the better the resolution uh, of the images they're able to get. You can use our Earth-sized telescope to image other distant objects? Right now, they're really focused on M87, which is the name of the, of the galaxy um, where this black hole is. But they've also begun to look at Sagittarius A star, which is the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, it's a little harder to study that one because of a various things, but one of, one of the things that makes it difficult to really study is that it evolves at a faster time scale, so they also need to develop um, other kinds of algorithms to uh, be able to really capture it. Okay, so let me see if I understand. So basically, we have all these telescopes all over the Earth. They're each capturing images, and they have, and then there's there's some supercomputer somewhere that is able to stitch them together by figuring out where they were on Earth, how the Earth rotates and moves, and sort of take all these different images from different angles into one. Basically like a super crazy version of like the two cameras on your phone. Is that right? 
well, <laughs> sort of, but... So the so, iPhone 30 is going to be able to do this by itself. I love um, when science experts like have <laughs> such a problem with us trying to like distill I things know. simply. Like, all, it's like, well, yeah, but... Tell us, but the the radio telescopes aren't actually taking any images. All of that happens after the fact, and that's actually the really really hard part. Um, so they're uh, they're taking readings, I think, of like of radio waves. Everything is in the radio uh, like radio oh, spectrum, and so then it becomes really challenging because you have these like petabytes of data. I think like massive amounts of data. The atmosphere sort of acts like a Disturbance—it's like it, it blurs the, the the signal, so to speak. And then you also have to account for the fact that the atmosphere in all these different locations is different. So one of the things that the algorithms helped the scientists do was, you know, get get rid of some of that "quote unquote" corruption. And so in sort of in post, right, like you would do in maybe Photoshop. Um, mm-hmm. All that data was synchronized and cleaned and and. Um, Synthesize in order to create the image that you saw. And because you know, the findings are really monumental, the scientists wanted to make sure that they weren't you know, biasing the results in any way or seeing things that they wanted to see. And so they divided themselves up into teams. Um, they each had a copy of the data. They weren't allowed to talk to each other. And then I think three or four weeks later, they congregated in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And at the same time, they sort of had a show and tell. They like all unveiled their own photos or their own images at the same time. And uh, Katie told me that that was one of the most exciting, you know, emotion-filled moments of her of her life wow. when she saw that these other teams had images that looked similar to the image that was uh, posted. And then after that, they, you know, they did more tests to make sure that what they were seeing was really what was out there in nature. Um, and so what we're, we're, the image that we got yesterday is sort of a composite, an average of the of the images from these different teams. One of my favorite photos that's kind of gone viral is of, of Katie. What's her, her last name is Bauman. Bauman, of her with, I mean, it looks like, I don't know, 50 hard drives, like God knows how many terabytes there are on each of yeah. those drives. And she said, I mean, I think the tweets that have been going around are they're about her, but that all of the data is like that's only a fraction of the data on those. So, like, I mean, just imagine how many or I mean, where are these? I mean, you kind of imagine supercomputers on like a different level trying to. Yeah, well, two supercomputers were, uh, they, they sort of synthesized all the data that came from all the radio telescopes, and then they went to the individual uh, science teams to mm-hmm. um, take a look at. That's awesome. So where do we go from here? What's, like, better is the next step? Get a get a sharper photo or photos of different ones? Like, where? what's the next plan? Yeah, so they're, they're going to add uh, telescopes to the network in order to make the image sharper. They're going to work on better algorithms to try to sharpen that up as well. Eventually, uh, the scientists said that they also wanted to put a telescope in orbit um, to get a sharper image. And what that would do is basically get rid of the, any distortion from the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, we have to, we, we should move on. But thank you, Daniela. This is this is awesome. And the next time, uh, can you tell them to just like make it a tiny bit sharper for us? I feel like <laughs> it's kind of a blurry picture, if I'm being honest with you. So... We all have laptops, we all have phones, we all have TVs. Those are these big, mature, hard to break into markets. But there's a new place where tech companies are trying to claim the same kind of territory, the dashboard of your car. And they have some new competition also. But I think the good news here is that 
no matter who wins, your car interface, which almost certainly is awful, is is about to get a lot better. So Tim Higgins usually comes in the show to talk Tesla, but this time, uh, Joanna and Mims, you have to promise me that we're not going to talk about Elon Musk at all. Um, and with that, let me go get Tim. Hold on. But we're going to talk about Elon Musk. I feel like Jeff Bezos has eclipsed him as the eccentric billionaire supervillain, maybe permanently. I wonder if that's going to affect his ability to raise money. True. But, I mean, Elon's just like two seconds away from tweeting something and, I don't know, vanishing from this earth. Yeah. <laughs> this is all the worst. All right. Tim's here. Tim, hello. So we made a rule that we're not going to talk about Tesla, which I actually just realized we're probably going to have to break because Tesla is doing more interesting car dashboard stuff than almost anybody. Let's just not talk about Elon Musk being nuts. We can talk about Tesla. We just can't talk about Elon Musk. What happens if so you, you want do? To talk about dashboards. So we want to talk about dashboards. <laughs> Somehow we already are talking about Elon Musk. So you, you wrote this big story this week about car dashboards as like the next phase of technology. And you're on the show with three people who spend a lot of time looking at screens and gadgets. And I think one thing we all have in common is that we hate the interface in our car. Is this going to get better? There's nothing, nothing more sexy than talking about the car radio. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, this has been a problem for car companies um, for a decade or more, a generation really, as, as consumers became more accustomed and familiar with the personal electronics that they have a in the home and increasingly in their pocket, they would look at the dashboard and say, uh, what's this? Because it's and, just like six buttons and right. nothing means anything. Right. And we've seen car companies, uh, you know, for years now try to bring that kind of uh, personal electronics-like uh, aspect to the dashboard, but they've really struggled with it. And part of that is because the car is an unforgiving environment. You've got to have the devices, you've got to have this dashboard work at extreme temperatures, either really hot or really cold. You've got to worry about the driver being distracted during operations. Um, and then also, I mean, you know, cars are really expensive and there's this really push to get all the pieces in that car very cheap. And so traditionally, the computing power in the car and those dashboards hasn't been as, uh, ro as robust as what you'd find in your iPhone. So, you know, you've got all these things stacked against it. And then on top of that, I mean, let's think about it this way. When was the last time you used a 10-year-old iPhone? Fair. Right? Your, your iPhone is probably about a year old, maybe two years old, whereas... Typically, people in the U.S. are driving around cars that are, could be a decade old. Or, yeah. you know, so, and on top of that, it takes several years for the technology in a car to be developed. So they're making the decision now that will go into place three years from now. So you've already got this lag. Okay, so all those things you said, all the challenges, right, make me think if I'm a car manufacturer, it would be really easy to just say, I'm not going to worry about this. And I feel like that's where like Android Auto and, and CarPlay from Apple came from, where they were like, okay, rather than worry about putting all this stuff directly into the car, we're just going to give you a plug and, an, and a dumb screen. It's like the smart TV version of things, right? Where it's like, right. just plug something into this that does the job and then upgrade that when you need it rather than having to buy a whole new car every time there's a new music app. Uh, but And it seemed for a couple of years, at least to me, that that was how it was going to shake out, that, that Apple and Android were going to win this just by being on your phones. But now it's starting to swing back the other way. Right. I mean, so, you know, the Android Auto and, and CarPlay, kind of an interesting bridge technology, right? It still can be kind of confusing and cumbersome, however. It's essentially projecting your car, your phone screen onto your car screen. And then, you know, what happens if you want to use some of the car functions, right? It's like, uh, I got a double tap on what? And you're like, there's a secret handshake. Yeah, it's and not great software. It's, you know, it's <laughs> but it's like fine. 
right? Like it, it's it's better than anything else that's offered by the car manufacturers, with the exception yes. of Tesla, maybe BMW, but actually no, not even BMW. Right, and and car companies realize that, and they're tired of getting dinged. Uh, on uh, customer service surveys on this, and they're trying to improve there. Oh, and so really what what some companies are doing, such as uh, Ford, they hired about 400 mm. people from BlackBerry to boost their software. Oh, Notoriously great tech company you oh, definitely want to take stuff from. Daimler is. I mean, like we could heavily. each sit here and tell you about the Microsoft fails in the car. Yeah, the new the new Daimler uh, system in Mercedes. Do you, think, do you think everyone would stop listening? Sorry, Tim, keep going. I think they've already turned off. Actually, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so there's somewhere between like that's good enough and who it's cares, right? Where it's like, okay, my car is here to play the radio, and right. CarPlay is fine. It's like, what's the what's the end game? So is these. Is these screens? I mean, it, it, the idea is you spend average American spends like fifty-one hour, uh, fifty-one minutes a day in their car. So you've got this captive audience, and you know reasons that you know, a Google wants to to tap into that market is there's a potential for all sorts of new business ways, right? So car companies are trying to rush to fix this problem that you've just described because they don't want to be left behind. They, we can look at Volvo as an example. They looked at that scenario and they said, "Well, wait a second. We don't want to be the so we don't want to be the phone makers of a decade ago prior to the iPhone and Android arriving. The the the, the folks who had their own ecosystems are trying to do their own software, and then Android came around, and you know everybody went that way because there's this digital world right. you can be in, and they're they're saying to themselves, we can't compete in that. So why don't we just turn over our dashboard to a Google operating system?" We can have then access to the Google's App Store. We, the, the user doesn't have to have their phone connected to the car. It is just kind of a seamless kind of digital world where you're watching YouTube in your house, and then you get into your car, and you can pick up the, the same spot and maybe the back seat or something like that. And, and there's more uh, you know, synergies you can have that way rather than like trying to create the Volvo online experience in the car, which... You know, a, a tiny a car company like Volvo, just it's very hard for them to compete right. in the long term. But then the problem now is you buy a car now, you're going to have it for 10 years. So there's, <laughs> there's a solid chance that the one that you buy now from a bunch of old engineers at BlackBerry uh, may not still be a thing in 10 years. So and that's me, why like, I argue why, that we'll always try? have the equivalent of the smartphone, the, the tape deck adapters. We'll always, we're always going to have that. That's true. I guess that just, right? that's just what CarPlay is now. It's, it's just basically what CarPlay is, or it is what those vent mounts are. Like It's just you what? trying to upgrade the tech that's already been in this car because the car manufacturers have always been five years behind. What you just said, David, which is that we don't get a new car every two years. But then on top of that, they are having to deal with the incredible costs of some other changes that are occurring at the same time. The, de the race to develop autonomous vehicles and regulatory issues in China and Europe and so much of the U.S. that's it's pushing the electrification of the car. So we've got a lot of money having to go in to make electric cars and a lot of money uh, feeling like it needs to go into the development of autonomous cars. And then there's that dashboard, and that's super expensive. And the idea of, like, becoming more of a software company is, is staggering for these companies. And so you've got this great uncertainty on all sorts of levels of like, what's the car going to be in five years or 10 years or 20 years? And one of the concerns is that when you move away from a world of selling and buying cars based upon horsepower and driving handling to 
more commodity electrification and perhaps not even driving, that your connection with that consumer really becomes only through that digital display in the car. And mm -hmm. that's that's mm -hmm. the way you own them. And if you turn that display to somebody over to somebody else, then really what are you at that point? Are you really just the provider of the, the, the company with the box with four wheels at that point? Yeah, it's like at that point, sort you're of just mirrors. like IKEA. You just like give me parts, and they're all kind of the same thing. Right? Yeah, and in some ways, right. it really mirrors what's happening in the smartphone market. Same, same sort of mm -hmm. thing. I, I think one of the interesting things that you're pointing out, Tim, and I thought one of the more fascinating parts of your story was about the relationships between the tech companies and the car manufacturers. And I liked this like little story that you had about how. Google was trying to work with BMW or BMW was trying to work with Google and there was this meeting and Google wanted access. They wanted to know if they if they could access the weight of the passenger. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. And, and presumably they wanted that so they could know who was in the car, right? What kind of person, whether it was mm -hmm. a child or a woman or I don't know. Right. Um, they want to know if they're selling ads to like a pizza or a well, person. Well, I mean, think about it this well, way. I mean, imagine you're in the car, you're the driver, and you're having your uh, text messages read to you mm -hmm. uh, aloud. You're individually in the car. What happens if you get your kid in the car? Uh, maybe you don't want to get the text messages um, from your uh, from Jeff Bezos, your Tinder friend. Right. <laughs> from Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> They're also looking at as, uh, you know, this is how we can provide some pretty interesting services for the first time. You, you, if, if they know the car is running out of gas or running out of charge, it, here are 10 places where you can get this taken care of. Um, that's how they use some of that data. So it, it, in some ways, it's a trade-off, right? You look at your phone, and it's taking data from you, but it's also providing you services that apparently some people like, right? I mean, you look at it, Waze is very useful for a lot of people. And yeah. one of the mm -hmm. reasons the car companies are struggling is they want to use, the consumers want ways in their car, right? Well, that takes data from you. What about Apple, right? Because Tim, you closed your piece with this guy who chose a car because it had CarPlay. Obviously, Apple mm -hmm. captured uh, the overwhelming majority of people who have the disposable income to buy fancy new cars. Uh, you know, apparently Apple has retained an automotive team despite no longer possibly working on autonomous vehicles. So what is that about? Is that just their CarPlay team? Like, what is Apple's angle here? Do they care? Well, it, Apple's always the question on automotive. And part of the, the reason you saw the automotive industry get more serious about these sorts of things was that the news of the that automotive team in 2015 kind of emerged and, you know, it was kind of a wake-up call uh, for car companies, it, it, kind of the realization that, okay, we, we've seen Google doing this self-driving car project, we're not really quite sure where they're going with it, and Tesla is really starting to gain steam, but, well, if Apple's going to be in the game, we better worry, worry about it. You know, that's where we really started seeing a lot of deals start happening after that. And so Apple's kind of the this unknown kind of question for a lot of car companies. But as we've gone from that point to now, there's really, you know, the sense is that, you know, kind of the the realization in Silicon Valley is that doing the car business is a lot harder than everybody anticipated. And you even look at Google and how their strategy has changed a little bit. They've focused on trying to get into that dashboard, making the the pitch to car companies about, uh, you know, working together. You look at Volvo and they're, they're rolling out their Google system. It's going to have a Volvo feel to it in, on top of the, the similarities of the Android system. So they're, they're very understanding that, you know, Volvo wants to own the brand still, right? So 
more willingness to work than say just come in and say this is the way it is right so you know you have apple there and clearly carplay has this great following among people um what they want to do next um is kind of like the tv uh it's a little unclear you know or you know there for years and years they were talking about doing a tv or the most people thought they were going to do a tv tv right and then they didn't, and they've had this all these other kind of different strategies. So we know that they want to be in the car space. It's just how that's going to be and how they can add something different is still to be determined. Which means inevitably everyone will debate about it incessantly for the next decade or so while, sure. while nothing actually happens. I also just noticed, by the way, that Tim has the Tesla stock price on the home screen of his Apple Watch which says basically everything I could ever want to tell you about Tim Higgins. <laughs> I got to go. The stock's moving. Before we get to Viva Walker and his cross-planet road trip, it's time for our segment, Today I Learned. Christopher, you have one this week, right? Yes. In the course of reporting about internet from space and so-called geosynchronous orbit, which is 23,000 miles from the surface of the Earth where satellites are and they orbit and uh, stay aimed at a fixed point on the Earth, um, I found out that in deep space... There is a forever museum of dead satellites. It's called the Graveyard Orbit. It's beyond geosynchronous orbit. And floating in it for the next three to 4,000 years is an actual nuclear reactor. It is called the SNAP-10A. It shut down after 43 days. But as far as we know, it's still there. And if you... Why did we shoot it into space? They wanted to test whether nuclear reactors could work in space so they could power <laughs> rockets and moon bases and stuff with them. So they launched it into wow. space in 1965. It's been there for 50 years. Pieces of it seem to have broken off around 1979, but it's still there. It may still be functional. If nothing else, it still has fissionable nuclear material in it. And, um, you know, someday I think astronauts might go out to the graveyard orbit and take a tour of our our satellite history and hopefully space terrorists will not get their hands on the possibly functioning nuclear reactor that is out there. So the rest of this graveyard orbit is just satellites that don't get used anymore for whatever reason, just sort of floating around. And then in the middle of it all, there's a nuclear reactor. Absolutely. What? All right. That's a good one. Today I learned. Uh, awesome. Thank you for that. Coming up in just a second, my interview with Viva Walker on what it's like to drive a hacked-together electric car tens of thousands of miles without any plan or money or plan to charge. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back. So in March 2016, a man named Viba Vacher left his home in the Netherlands and started driving. At some point, he knew he'd end up in Sydney, Australia. He had an electric car, he had no money, and before he left, he set up a website called the Plug Me In Project. It asked people to help him with a place to stay, food to eat, or power for his car. And that was pretty much all he'd planned. So my idea was really to, to start in, in Amsterdam without any money, just with an electric car, and a goal to, to reach Sydney. So to make that possible, I asked people to offer me energy. So I have a website, plugmeinproject.com, where people 
can go to a Google map, select a location and offer me either a meal, a place to sleep or electricity for the car. So those three things, that's basically, I thought what I needed uh, yeah, to travel around. So you, you, you decided you want to do this in an electric vehicle and you, you did some, some work on a vehicle to get it ready for this trip. Like what was the, tell me about the mm. car. Um, so as, as I was a poor student, I, I could not afford an electric car myself. And um, so I needed a sponsor for that. So first I started approaching all the car manufacturers who had electric vehicles at the time. Were you hoping for a Tesla? Uh, actually, I was not hoping for, for a Tesla because like uh, doing this trip uh, without any money and uh, relying on people's generosity, I found it a bit weird to show up at their upper places with a like a hundred thousand dollar car <laughs> uh, that didn't really yeah really match with with the with the level with the yeah with the the goals of this of this trip and uh yeah also was i also wanted to go like to show that it can be done in a yeah in a in a like average electric vehicle uh which was more like approaching for for other people and uh mm-hmm. so i thought like okay i need a few sponsors uh to um so i can buy like a second hand electric car and I was like aiming for a, a Nissan Leaf or Renault Zoe and uh, so I started comp- contacting all kinds of companies who were had a match on the terms of sustainability or electric mobility and there was one a company called Bundles and he was one of the first I called and I was explaining I was just made a cold call and explained what I was doing and I asked like is it interesting for you to sponsor he said like wow what you wanted to do is, is amazing I just founded my own company and I see a lot of similarities because about sustainability, about taking chances and taking a bit of risk. So, well, I don't have any money, but I do have an electric car. This wasn't like a, a car that you were given or, or bought or whatever for this purpose. It was someone's car that they just decided yeah. to let you borrow for this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I told him like, yeah, he asked me like how much time you ought to need. And I think like a year, year and a half. And it took two years. But, uh, <laughs> so and he, never com- he, he never complained about that. And he actually, he came to Sydney last week. Uh, especially for the for the finish of my trip and uh, yeah so uh, he's really proud and he's really excited what what kind of shape is it in now is it is it still is it still kicking after all this time it's it's pretty good actually like everybody saw me like it's, it still looks so good there are yeah a few scratches on it but no no big damage and the car that like the owner he, he drove it over the past weekend he said like yeah it it still looks exactly the same as, as when I hand it over to you and it, it drives still the same. Okay. So what's your, what's your mindset on the first day? Like, as you get in the car to start this trip, you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know where all the stops are. Like what, how are you feeling when you get in the car? Um, yeah, I was super excited, uh, because I had like been organizing that for a year and a half. So I was really looking forward to the moment that I could finally, uh, set out. And, uh, yeah, of course I knew it was going to be a big adventure. And, um, yeah, when, when I left, I, uh, had about, 200 offers for 200 people who, who signed up so that's i thought okay now let's go and uh, in a few weeks in about four weeks i was already in uh, in italy uh so that was like south like kind of on the way to to australia or at least in the right direction but then i, I ended up uh in the middle of uh of italy and there were no people south from there who, who signed up uh so then I, but there were a lot of people from Scandinavia who said, come over here to have a meal with us. And so that's okay. I decided to take the scenic route. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to look at the map of the way that you went because there's a, it's not a straight line, but there's something like a, a pretty direct route. And it feels like for no part of the journey were you on the most direct no. route to get <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, no, never. Uh, that was a fun part because it really de- determined by, by, um, yeah, by, the, by the offers I, I received. 
And sometimes uh, I had uh, like I was in a place and then I could had like I had more options. I could go east, west, or south. And then I would let my followers decide what will be the next point. So I posted on Facebook like, hey guys, hey, where should I go? And, uh, and they vote on Facebook. And then after 24 hours, I would, I would look who had the most vote points. And then I would go to that point. So it's really, uh, yeah, that, that made, it, made it a bit longer also to do it in that way. So what was, the, what was the first kind of roadblock you hit? What was the first time something went wrong? It's a problem with us in, uh, in India. Mm. Uh, because uh, I mean electricity you can find everywhere because like the population is so dense so I would never feel uncertain that I would run out of energy somewhere and uh, wouldn't have a place to charge uh, but the problem was the the voltage is over there so at, at one point I uh, ended up in a town where we could only find uh, outlets with four amperes and uh, with, with four amperes it will take about two weeks or something to, to charge a car. Wow. Uh, so that was like the first hurdle. And then, yeah, we went looking, looking, looking. And then it took about a, uh, only, only until the next day we found a uh, some kind of workshop where they had a, like industrial power and, we, and then we managed to, to charge a car over there. Um, but running out of energy only happened in Australia. The range of my car is about 200 kilometers. And here Australia... Yeah, it happened that I sometimes needed to cross a distance uh, way more than 200, uh, 255 kilometers was the biggest distance I needed to cover. Mm-hmm. So that day I, I knew like today I'm going to drive and I'm just not going to make it. So what do you do? Yeah, what do I do? So I checked my, my weather app and then I saw like the next day at uh, 12 hours later at 9 a.m. I would have a tailwind. So I waited to get a tailwind and then drove 60 kilometers all the way uh, to save as much as energy as possible. So like you have these road, r- huge roadways in Australia and they were not really my friend that day, but yeah, I had to get to the next point or at least as, as close as possible. Uh, so actually I did a record that day. I did 235 kilometers on one charge. Then I put on a lot of sunscreen, put up my thumb and I wait for somebody to pass by it who can uh, give me a tow. And that happened about four times that I needed to do that in Australia. Um, but before Australia, I, I really never, never had that problem. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because it seems like a, a lot of what you're describing, this trip would have been on some level way more efficient if you had done it in a, in a gas-powered car. Uh, but it would have been a lot more expensive, probably a lot less fun, and terrible for the world, <laughs> which I feel like is, is sort of precisely the point, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just it's the, this project. I just want to show like that it, that it is possible. Uh, I I don't want to show that it is, or I want to say like it is super easy now to travel around the world in a in an electric car because I like uh, yeah, people say like oh you've shown that it, it is possible, but an average electric car driver uh, doesn't want to drive a, a few two hours and then have to plug his, have to ask like some local shop owner if it's okay to. Uh, to plug the car into his shop and then wait a few hours at the shop until you have a little bit of range and, and continue. Yeah. What would you say, like if, if you were in a place where nobody had ever heard of you or what you were doing, did you develop a you know 30 second story to tell them to explain what you were doing? Because it sounds like it's not, it's, I'm sure they had not seen someone who was going through quite what you were going through. The, the only thing was that, that I have my car, which, which kind of did the, the sales pitch uh, for me because... Uh, it's a big blue and, and shiny car and especially in Asia they don't have station wagons so uh, people instantly see this car and see it's different and definitely when the, you drive 
through a town uh, without making any noise, which in Asia is, of course, very common. And then you know, those people have never seen an electric car before. So. <laughs> Fair enough. So what... Tell me about the last day. What was what was that feeling like? You've you've been through this whole thing. It took it was so long. It was this big giant thing. What's the last day like? Yeah, yeah, it, it was so good the whole day. So um, it started with uh, electric parade. Um, so because like I've I've been been doing this whole trip on my own, but I always have been powered by people. Like I never could have made it without all the help I received. Uh, so, um, I wanted to organize a parade. So we got, we gathered at the Tesla supercharger in the North of Sydney and asked people with electric cars to, to gather there. And I expected about 15, maybe 20 cars, but then 50 cars showed up. All wow. people were supporting me all the trip to Australia. Uh, even people from, from Darwin and Adelaide and Melbourne and Darwin is really far away from here. It's like 3000 kilometers or something. They came down. Uh, to guide me on the last uh, miles and then yeah we started started driving and we drove together over that iconic harbor bridge and uh, at some point there was even a, a helicopter above us from a local uh, tv uh, station who were like broadcasting the parade and the arrival live on television and on facebook so that was like insane like it was really insane that that, that was happening and then uh, yeah i arrived at the uh, Royal Botanic Garden, which was like right in front of the Opera House and with the backdrop of the Harbour Bridge. And it was like beautiful location. And uh, yeah, there were also hundreds of, now hundreds, a few, like a hundred people or something uh, were waiting for me there. And uh, I, I'm still like, I uh, didn't have uh, any words the, the days after that. I'm still so excited and happy how it all turned out. And uh, it was like, yeah, like really just a kind of a fairy tale, like a dream or something almost. It was, yeah, perfect. And uh, yeah, especially like I've been trying to to get to that point for like three years. Didn't know how or when I would get there, and then yeah, I made it. So it was yeah, it was beautiful. So okay, so run me through the the stats. Have you tallied up like how many days and how many miles and and what's the what's the sort of full specter of the trip? Okay, so one thousand one hundred and nineteen days, uh, crossing thirty three countries and driving uh, ninety five thousand kilometers without visiting a single uh, fuel station on the way. So what do you feel like you sort of learned about where we are with electric cars and that kind of thing? Because it's, it's, it seems like you went through an interesting mix of there being maybe even more infrastructure and support and understanding of how this can work than you thought, but still not nearly as much as there should be. Yeah, so yeah, at the moment, it's, it's really, it seems like a bit of a thing of uh, yeah, more of the developer countries, which, which mm-hmm. makes sense because they have the, the money to do that. But in the other countries where... Uh, e-mobility has taken off you see that it's mainly because of governments or uh, private sector who've been starting uh, working on the uh, infrastructure um, so i think yeah if it, if you really want to make this global shift happen then we st- should start working on that and just yeah, make start making more awareness for for electric mobility yeah and i have to say i really like the idea of it almost being social in a way. Like, I think it's very cool that people just ran plugs out of their windows and into your car. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if we'll ever get yeah. to a world where that happens for everybody, but I kind of like that. That's a yeah. nice thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I had some, some crazy situation that I had to drop an extension lead from the apartment on the fifth floor of my host where I was staying all the way the down. Fifth to, floor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really happened. It was like 20, wow. 25 meters or something. It was, yeah. Uh, it was, it was kind of, uh, one time even I had to, to park my car. Uh, it was in Iran 
uh, had my parked my car in a garage and then we had to there was no plug and then we had to uh, pull put a wire against a uh, light pole and then put it over the street onto the neighbor across his house and attach it there to the light pole and then put it down and into the house and yeah many situations like that so that's what i was saying about that's a bit of the pioneering part that it feel, felt sometimes uh, it was uh, yeah it was really fun wow so what so what now how do you how do you get home three more years of of just go uh, to the <laughs> same direction um actually i'm i'm going to uh now to new zealand uh just have been contacted yesterday awesome. by some by some companies over there who heard about my finish and said uh why don't you finish in new zealand because then you're actually like on the other side of the world it's even farther away from <laughs> That's Australia. True. yeah you're you're right so they want to ship my car to new zealand and ship it back home i'm not going to drive back like i'm still enjoying this trip but after three years I uh, just, I had my fun and I, I, I completed, like I, I, I reached my goal. So I will ship the car back home and fly back home probably. How luxurious is it going to feel to get on a plane? Yeah, it's going to be really weird. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be yeah, a bit of a disastrifying. I mean, it took me like over three years to get here and then I fly back home within 24 hours. It's a bit boring. Viva's journey is best anyone can tell the longest electric car trip ever recorded. Frankly, I can't imagine anyone wanting to drive much farther, so his record might stand for a while. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks to Viva, Tim, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Tanya, our producer, and Wilson, our editor, and thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message on whatever podcast app you use. If you have feedback or ideas, email us at personaltech at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon.